Welcome to Jiri Snacks, snackable episodes about the Jiri exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable Jiri course that includes everything you need to ace your Jiri exam. A full textbook, tons of Jiri questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm and full length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got Petia Whitmore from My MBA Path on the line with us today. And Petia, do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and your company? Hi, Tyler. Happy to introduce myself, Petia Whitmore, founder of the MBA admissions consulting firm My MBA Path. And for the last 15 years, my life has really been in MBA admissions. I spent eight years at Babson College, which happens to be my alma mater. Most recently, I was the dean of MBA admissions there, directing the recruiting and admissions efforts across a suite of MBA and specialized master's programs. From there, I spent a couple of years at um, the Education Advisory Board, which is a Vista Equity Partners portfolio company, and I helped build an enrollment marketing program that helped business schools attract candidates. And then just before I launched my MBA path, I spent a couple of years at the Graduate Management Admission Council, more specifically directing the efforts of the MBA tour as the managing director there. And since then, um, I've been running my MBA path, which is a place where smart, determined MBA candidates gather to get the tools they need to be successful in the MBA admissions process. Fantastic. And so today we're going to be talking about how an MBA admissions committee actually works, right? And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about MBA admissions. <laughs> and so I feel like this will be a really helpful episode to kind of walk people through the process. Um, so I'm curious, I mean, where do you want to start? Do you want to kind of start with just like walking through kind of how it all works in the first place? Or do you want to maybe um, go into like who's on the committee? What, what do you want to uh, start with? Um, let's start with what maybe the purpose of the MBA admissions committee is right. uh, and, and why it even exists, right? So when you think about the MBA application process, especially at the uh, leading schools, uh, one of the facts is that there's more demand than there is a supply of seats in MBA programs. So as a result, the top MBA programs receive a really large volume of applications and they can only accommodate so many of them. So in order for that volume of applications to be given its due diligence and, and be assessed and evaluated and some um, selections and choices to be made, um, there needs to be a process, right? And there needs to be a group of people who um, manage this process and are part of it. So this is the role of the MBA Admissions Committee. It's quite simply a team of people within a graduate business school that have a process for evaluating and selecting the MBA candidates that they want to see in their next class. And maybe it would be helpful to talk about um, who's on the committee across the various schools. Mm -hmm. So um, the composition of the MBA admissions committee will vary by school and even by program within the same school. For example, it could be one set of individuals for a full-time program and a different one for a specialized master. Uh, but all admissions committees or ECOMs, as the candidates like to call them, although I will say that um, 
barely anyone uses that word in actual MBA admissions team. So this is a fun fact for you. I remember that <laughs> when I started talking about MBA comms, one of my former bosses from Babson, who has been in MBA admissions for a very long time, she used to work at Columbia. She's the person who raised me in MBA admissions. She texted me having read one of my pieces and she said, what on earth is an EdCom? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that it was actually an MBA admissions consultant who came up with that abbreviation. I think it's more popular on the undergraduate side, but um, it's become part of the lingo. So we all say MBA EdCom now. So um, the MBA EdCom, regardless of what differences there might be, will always include admissions recruiters and directors. Some MBA outcomes might include an academic leader. So say an associate dean or an assistant dean from the school, it could be a faculty director. Um, to give an example from my own work, at various times when I was head of MBA admissions at Babson, sometimes I would have an associate dean on the outcome. Some years I had the dean of the business school himself on the outcome. For the specialized masters, very often I had a faculty director. And sometimes you might even have someone who represents career services. Because obviously the MBA as a degree is very outcome focused. And there has to be part of the process is the evaluation of the feasibility of someone's career plan and career goals. And um, the career services participation is probably the most the biggest variable, I've heard schools that absolutely don't have it, but I've also heard schools that not only have it, but that office might have a vote if you wish. Right. Uh, when the candidates think about the MBA admissions committee, one thing that they sometimes often misunderstand is that there are two very distinct roles within everyone who contributes to the admissions committee in some, in some way. Um, there are evaluators and then there are decision makers. So to best illustrate the difference between an evaluator and a decision maker, uh, we can take the example of schools who engage current students and alumni in the interview process, for example, or in some instances, <clears throat> even in the reading. So someone who's interviewing candidates and providing some form of an evaluation on that person's performance in the interview and what they learned about them is not a decision maker. And that's a big difference. Um, so candidates should keep this in mind. Obviously, um, knowing this is not going to necessarily change their behavior, but where it potentially plays a role is that the MBA admissions consulting space itself is extremely saturated and mm -hmm. um, being able to provide an at-com perspective is very coveted and Unfortunately, I have seen sometimes a little bit of a twisting of the truth, if you wish, where um, people who've clearly only been in an evaluator role present themselves as an ATCOM. You can say that I'm an ATCOM purist, right? To me, <laughs> you can you can say that you've been an ATCOM if you've been the person who had decision-making power, or in some instances, um, for example, my role was such that not only did I have decision-making power, but I could potentially be the tiebreaker. Not potentially, I was the tiebreaker. So if a candidate was on the fence, if you wish, sort of maybe admissible, but maybe not, I would be the deciding voice and a critical second set of eyes to determine, does this person pass our process mm -hmm. of evaluation and selection and do we want them um, in the class? 
Some schools also um, employ external leaders simply because the volume of applications can be tremendous. I remember that back in my day at Babson, between Christmas and March, every single day, a huge part of my work was to read applications every single weekend as well for years. There was never a Super Bowl weekend. Um, during that time, it was also known as the New England Patriots Invitational. Uh, but there wasn't a single Sunday, um, Super Bowl Sunday, when I wasn't reading applications. Uh, mm-hmm. So because of the volume, schools will sometimes employ external readers who are trained to read a file and provide a recommendation. But again, very often these external readers are not decision makers. They're not necessarily even present in the actual admissions committee. Yeah, so I, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in that, right? Um, I think that the the first and most important is is talking about how, I mean, you touched on it a little bit. You said that, like, there's a lot of people that are kind of, they were evaluators and they weren't decision makers. And they're kind of casting themselves as as more authoritative than they are, which I thought was really interesting. And And I'm curious, sort of, where, like, within the process, right, like, just to walk through, like, kind of um, how it all works. Is, is it that essentially evaluators are reading applications and then bringing their recommendation to a group of decision makers and then sort of like what is what are the decision makers because my assumption then is that there's probably the evaluators are bringing more people to the table than decision makers can say yes to so then like what are the evaluators looking for that's maybe and then what are the decision makers looking for it's a little different that's that's um exactly the way it works so it Let's actually, let's take a look at what happens after you hit submit. So if you're yeah. a candidate, let's say the deadline has come. We're at this point probably, what, four and a half months away from the round one deadlines in the U.S. and also in Europe. It's going to be in early September. So let's say the deadline has come and gone. Um, you've hit submit after days and weeks and months of, of lots of work and lots of anxiety. Um, what happens after that? The very first look at a file is usually done by an operations team because the files pile in at the mm-hmm. deadline. I, um, it's, it's amazing also to me how they really truly come in. A huge majority of them comes in within the last hour before the deadline. Back in the day <laughs> when I was at Babson, I used to run graphs year after year and invariably the hour before the deadline is when you saw easily 85% of the applications, which always amazes me because it feels incredibly nerve-wracking to be leaving that moment of hitting submit for the last one hour, but that's how candidates do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So the operations team will sort of take this entire pile of applications, which nowadays is primarily digital. I don't think that any school reads or prints paper applications anymore. Mm -hmm. And they'll start processing them, meaning that they're going to ensure that all parts that are required have been um, received. In some instances, that means that if your GMAT test score or GRE test score was sent separately, it's going to be matched to your record. Your recommendations will be matched to your record. Very often, there will be a checklist that you're going to be able to see that will show the progress of your application and that all of the pieces have been received. So... um, once 
all of this has been received and nothing is missing, your application is considered complete. And only once it's considered complete does it really start truly being reviewed. And typically there are two rounds of review. There's a first round of review that um, will determine who gets interviewed or not. Uh, this is very often done on rolling basis. The files, the application files are divided across a group of readers or slash reviewers. Um, the division could be done by alpha. It could be done by region, say geographic region. Every school will have their own methodology and um, idea of how to do it. It can be completely random. You take these 150 files and then the second person takes the next 150 um, so with the first round of review, uh, it very often has to do with evaluation. Do you have the required qualifications to be academically successful? Do you have appropriate examples of leadership, accomplishment, challenge, growth? Can you demonstrate that you are, again, sufficiently qualified to be a member of that community, of that program? And mm -hmm. just like you suggested, this process will very often uh, result in a much larger group of candidates than there are seats. And at that stage, that's okay, because the next step will be, there will be a determination of who gets invited for an interview. That determination, again, will vary from school to school. Sometimes it's possible that the reviewer themselves makes that determination and um, suggests and, and has the ability to invite some for an interview. Or it might be that all the applications are reviewed and then the committee, the admissions committee actually decides as a first step in the decision making process, decides who gets invited for an interview. Mm -hmm. So it might vary, but anyhow, the first sort of round of review determines who gets invited for a interview. And then being invited to the interview is usually really fantastic news for candidates because it means you are admissible. Everything that the reviewer and whoever else may have been involved in um, has passed sort mm -hmm. of the evaluation criteria. Yeah, and, you cleared and the now bar. The, <laughs> you've cleared the bar, and now um, they want to see who you actually are. They want to see you kind of in real life, in action. They want to hear how you speak, how you formulate your thoughts. So really, um, really fantastic place to be in. But of course... Um, it's not the end of the journey because there's um, still a lot of hurdles to be cleared after the um, the interview. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's interesting. So, um, in I mean, when you're going into the interview stage, right? At, like at that point, what is it that the um, the admissions team is trying to do? Like, are, is the admissions team's goal with the interview to just kind of figure out culture fit and figure out if they like you and if you're a nice person or if you're actually kind of cocky and arrogant? Or is it, um, you know, trying to dig deeper on certain parts of the application? Are there specific things that they want to make sure that they check? I, I mean, I'm sure this varies by school to an extent, but just with what you've seen, like, what do you feel like the purpose of the interview is? Uh, yeah, you bring up a number of, of good points that are, in fact, um, part of the purpose of the interview. At a, at a very sort of broad level, the two things that the interview aims to determine is, A, are you who you presented yourself to be? Are these accomplishments that you talked about, um, 
truly yours that you can speak about? And can you speak about them in a way that adds even more color, even more nuance to it? And then the second part that's being assessed in the interview very often is the uh, communication and interpersonal skills. In any MBA program, regardless of the method of delivery, the ones that are very case method-based versus um, more um, teaching and, and a different kind of discussion, um, there's always a lot of um, discussion that happens in classrooms and outside of classrooms and a lot of teamwork. The NBA is a team sport, and um, as a team sport, specifically in the discipline of management, it requires very strong communication skills and very strong teamwork skills. So that's the second part that is assessed in the um, MBA admissions interview. So what um, becomes really important for candidates is, A, uh, for them to know their application really well, because just because you created your application doesn't mean that you remember it by the time you get to the interview. And also um, to be able to continue to connect the dots and, and sort of continue to build a picture of the things you did and how you did them and why you did them that ends up being interesting and exciting. And then, of course, um, it's worth considering how do you come across purely from the way you speak, the way you present yourself, and, um, and your ability to offer even more anecdotes. The interview is a perfect place where even more stories and even more storytelling happens um, in order to, again, present the uniqueness of your background and make it come to life. Yeah, and so that's. Um, I mean, it's really interesting that you you kind of double down on on advice that is you know that you've given, and I feel like other people have given is to really just be yourself, right? And to try to be yourself in the interview. Is there anything though that you should maybe not do in the interview, or just like common mistakes to avoid, or or things like that? Um, one thing that I very often see is candidates take the words "be yourself." to mean uh, be unfiltered, and that's definitely not the case. You have to be authentic, but you can't be unfiltered, and your communication has to have an intent behind it. So um, again, I very often speak about the entire MB application process being an exercise in strategic communications. This is very true of the MBA interview. Um, what you say has to have a purpose. If you're sharing a story with me and, and you're telling me um, an anecdote about what you did, what are the traits that you're trying to convey about mm -hmm. yourself and how do they help um, differentiate you in the process and build a stronger picture of you? So being intentional, um, preparing for your interview without necessarily being um, needlessly rehearsed is very important because, again, you are sending a set of signals, a set of messages about yourself as a candidate, and you want to be intentional in those messages, um, which is not in any contradiction with the notion of being authentic. Again, you can be authentic and prepared, and you should be. Um, being authentic doesn't mean just showing up and kind of talking about whatever comes to mind in the moment. It has to be way more intentional and structured than that. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. So then let's say you get the interview done and it went well enough, right? That you didn't get rejected <laughs> at that point. Uh, what is the next step in the process? 
The next step in the process is the full MBA file review, although that terminology is tentative. But usually once the interview is in, now your candidacy is truly complete. All the pieces that the school expects um, to have completed are there. So someone, very often a second reader, sometimes there could even be a third reader, in some of the very selective programs, you might even have the head of the MBA admissions committee themselves sort of read a lot of these post-interview files. But what happens is um, the entire application is read again, ideally and typically by a second person in order to avoid bias, in order to avoid um, sort of duplicating the same opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, very often that second read is blind, meaning that the second reader doesn't have access to the notes and the recommendation of the first reader. Right. So the two levels of assessment are entirely independent of each other. And then at that point, the second reader will also make a recommendation, this time with the full set of materials, the application materials, and the interview. And then that file is ready to go in front of the actual admissions committee, where Mm -hmm. what happens is the entire group of candidates who've been interviewed are now being considered as a group, and selections are being made from within that group of fully qualified individuals. Because remember mm-hmm. what we were talking about earlier? If you get invited to the interview stage, you're admissible. You've mm-hmm. passed the interview stage, barring you bombing your interview, which doesn't happen all that often. And if you want to, we can talk about what, what could sort of represent a really poor performance in the interview. But barring you doing something really unacceptable or not so smart, Chances are, even post-interview, you continue to be admissible. So now the admissions Mm -hmm. committee has this really, really difficult task of saying, all right, we have 3,000 candidates who are admissible, but we can only admit half of them. So how do we select which ones we're going to admit? And the one thing I'm going to say, and then um, we can can jump to our next question, is that um, who they're going to admit has very little to do with who they like necessarily. Mm. So it's not about liking. Uh, It's about um, who will be the best addition to the class, the best contributor to the class discussions, to the community, who will be a great alum two years down the road, 10 years down the road. Who does this program need? What are the programmatic goals? What are the institutional goals? So it goes way beyond um, liking, which Sometimes it's something that candidates misunderstand because I'll very often have someone come to me for what in the industry is called ding analysis, so analyzing why they didn't get admitted. And they'll say, I had an amazing interview. I know my interviewer liked me. That very well may be the case. But that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that that person, that candidate, will end up being selected when the admissions committee sits down and decides, this is who we have, this is who we want. Yeah, so I'd actually I, I I want to like continue down the path, but really quickly, I I'm so curious about the side note of bombing the interviews. Can you just say what are what are some things to avoid and how to not bomb the interview? I think that'd be really interesting, really quick. Um, the most um, challenging thing that someone can do, in my opinion, and also my opinion is based on the fact that I've worked in this field for so long and I've frequently interacted with 
other schools at our annual conferences, we're all peers, our community is small, so I speak with admissions directors a lot. Uh, in my mind, the worst thing that a candidate can do is be arrogant. Mm -hmm. um, this is never a uh, look that's appealing. This is never um, a um, behavior that presents a good picture. So being arrogant, um, sounding like you are you feel that you are a slam dunk for that school, right? I mean, sometimes it can, it can be so assured, self-assured and confident in themselves to think that they're going to be a great asset um, to the school and they can overdo the, um, that level of confidence. But, but arrogance is usually wrong. Um, obviously, saying something inappropriate can also be the case. And inappropriate is a broad category, but I'm sure our listeners can can figure out what that means. Um, right. An inappropriate comment, reference, insensitive remarks, that is another surefire way of being um, moved to the deny pile. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. So then let's jump back to sort of on track here. So when we're going through these admissions committee sessions, right, what are the, what's sort of the process for it? Like, does somebody champion a particular resume or is it more just, okay, we're going to talk about Sally and then you know, somebody kind of presents Sally and then everybody talks about it? Or is it that you've read, everyone has already read Sally's whole file and then you're like, okay, so now let's talk about this person. Like, how is the conversation structured and kind of how does that work? So it's a, it's a, admissions committee used to be my favorite days when I was Dean of MB Admissions. Um, like you indicated, yes, the files by then have been read. And in admissions committee, um, the process might vary, but um, the way it's going to happen is the committee will get together for a day, for two days, sometimes maybe even for three days, depending on the size of the pool. And they will engage in um, once again reviewing the summary of each file and some deliberation and eventually making a decision on that file. So um, I can tell you how um, committee worked during my days when I ran a committee. So we would gather, we would have a bunch of screens so that we can be looking at the application itself, but we can also, on a separate screen, maybe pull up the resume or pull up the transcript. So um, the admissions director for the program that we're recruiting for will be presenting the files. So they'll say, here's Tyler, um, these are Tyler's statistics, and this is what Tyler has been doing for work, and this is what Tyler's career goals are. And Tyler interviewed really great, so my recommendation here is to admit. Mm -hmm. But as we're looking at Tyler's statistics, right, um, the associate dean might notice that Tyler had a GPA of 2.9. And the associate dean is kind of like the academic um, integrity and academic strength gatekeeper, if you wish. So they might say, mm, let me see that transcript. So the person who's presenting the files will project that transcript on the screen and will start dissecting it. And mind you, that transcript has already been reviewed, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is not the first time that transcript is being looked at and some recommendation or if there are red flags um, on the transcript, they will have been called out in the summary. But still, let's say the academic leader on the committee wants to take a deep dive into it themselves. So they're looking and they're seeing, oh, there's a whole bunch of Fs here and look at that C minus in calculus. But then someone else on the committee, and that has happened to me, 
say a faculty director might say, yeah, but look at this. This is a C minus in chemical engineering from Cornell. And I went to Cornell myself. And let me tell you, like getting a C minus is, is a success. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of deliberation that happens. And um, you asked earlier, is it possible for someone to champion a person? It absolutely is possible. It, and it very often happens. And this is another reason why um, something that we haven't talked about, but I'm going to mention very briefly, is important. And that's school engagement. Attending school events, getting to know the admissions office, speaking with um, current students at the program, because sometimes you might have a file or a candidacy that's not necessarily universally strong and stellar. But I vividly remember one of my admissions recruiters, one of my admissions directors would say, Patia, I remember this candidate, and they are an absolute firecracker. You should have seen the work that they've done in Lima, Peru, to support first-generation college students. And also, this person is so passionate about our program. They attended three different events. They've spoken with five um, of our current students. In fact, I got two emails from the leader of the Latin Entrepreneurship Forum, and they're endorsing this person. So I really, really want to make a case that we admit them. Well, guess what? That kind of vouching for a candidate and speaking excited in such an excited way about them makes a huge difference. It mm-hmm. can very easily help someone outperform a not-so-stellar GMAT or a GRE, a not-so-stellar GPA. So um, being able to excite the committee about the opportunity of joining their com- community goes a tremendously long way. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. And then once you're kind of going through that process, um, I, I think there's, you know, obviously you're, you're deciding whether to admit or not admit somebody at a certain point, you know, I, my guess is that you're kind of always keeping track of like kind of how many spots you have as you're going through it. Is there any relation to when you reviewed as far as like, did you apply earlier or, you know, not in the last hour, like you said, or is there any like, basically, because my, my hypothesis and you can, uh, you can take issue with this hypothesis if you, if you may, but the hypothesis I have is that it's probably like at the beginning, you're just kind of saying yes or no to people pretty straightforwardly. And then kind of as you get closer to like your last 10 or 20%, you're like, eh, we don't have that many spots left, right? It gets a little, maybe a little crunch time. Um, is that true? And then if so, like, is there anything you can do to kind of be earlier, like be like maybe sending in your application uh, a month early or whatever it is? Um, so it can be true in the case uh, when a school or a program within a school has um, the so-called rolling admission which means Mm. that decisions are made as applications roll in. But when it comes to admission by rounds, which is um, for the full-time MBA programs, um, the the majority of them admit by rounds. The whole purpose of admitting by round is so that you have a large group of candidates to compare and contrast. So when admission is done by rounds, when you submit in relationship to the deadline really makes no difference. And like I said, uh, when admission is by rounds, 85% of candidates submit in the last hour, so they don't get penalized for that. But if there's rolling admission, applying earlier always has advantages. Got it. And then um, where, when, uh, so at what point, I guess, as 
so now it's kind of like we were just walking through the steps. We're at the step where people have been admitted. Do when do the scholarship conversations happen? Do they happen right away, or do they kind of happen like um, in a separate conversation later? So that process will vary sometimes from school to school, but in my experience, we did um, scholarship decisions immediately after we did admission decisions. So you conclude the admissions decision part, and now you have a group of several hundred, or in some instances, a couple of thousand candidates that you've decided that you're going to admit. And then you start looking at them from a merit standpoint, um, because again, scholarships that get awarded are very often based on merit. There could, of course, be also need-based scholarships, but that process is much more formulaic, if you wish, because it's based on your actual financial needs. So there's a process that um, you follow to demonstrate your financial need, and then you're being reviewed according to your need. But I'm going to leave this aside here because that's not the majority of scholarships, and it's also not um, what candidates um, very often need to know um, so I'm going to speak from the perspective of merit scholarships, which are given based on the overall strength of your candidacy. So like I was saying, that process very often happens immediately after admissions decisions are made. Again, you have a pool of candidates that you've decided you're going to admit, and then you have a scholarship budget, right? And then mm-hmm. you also have a rubric, if you wish, because of course you have to be consistent in how you award, and you have to remain consistent year over year, and you have a strategy a little bit as well. So you follow that um, the constraints of your budget, you follow the rules of your rubric, and you look at how meritorious each candidate is that's very often determined by some of the quantitative metrics, such as test scores, GPA, work experience, but also by the rest of the candidate's profile, especially in the instances when there might be some specialized scholarships that are awarded based on a certain trait, certain characteristic. Right. Got it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then at this point, is there anything else or is it time to send the admissions decisions out? (laughs) So once all of this has been said and done, um, there is a process of um, verifying the decisions and kind of setting them up to be released to the world. I have to say that every year, every round when that happened, that was a very sleepless night for me because I've stopped following things as closely, but during my time uh, and my days as head of MBA admissions, almost every year there was always, like you'll see in the Chronicle of Higher Education, a school doing something where they released the wrong decisions, they told the wrong person that they got admitted. And obviously you never want to be in the news for something like that. So mm-hmm. I took the verification and release process very seriously. Um, fortunately, during my time, nothing Nothing went wrong. Our decisions always went live appropriately on time with the right decisions being attached. Um, so you release the um, online decisions. And then at least in my case, we also used to send a paper letter. And I used to sign these letters personally. I never used the oh, stamp. Goodness. I never used that one. Oh, it was very often. I would have literally a pile in my office and it would take about two hours to yeah. sign the letters, and I will never, ever forget the last batch of admit letters that I signed when I was at Babson. I used to play music to kind of entertain myself while doing it, but I also used to secretly think that if it's like some really fun music, it sends kind of like a good positive vibe with the letter. So um, 
I am um, European and I grew up with um, French being one of my first foreign languages. English is my fourth um, foreign oh, wow. language. French was my second. And I am a huge fan of the... Um, He's actually Belgian, but French-speaking singer Stromae. So I listened to one of his, um, the recordings of one of his live concerts in Montreal. And that two-hour con- concert was just about the perfect length for me to finalize signing these admissions decisions. And I may have been dancing in my seat a little bit as I was signing, but uh, we had a great <laughs> class that year. Well, that's uh, yeah. I think you're right. The the, the good uh, the good energy shines through there. Um, <laughs> I think it's just. I mean, it is a very happy time for these students to to get these no, uh, admissions notices, right? Um, you're definitely not going through all the effort and of applying to business school if you're not excited about it. Absolutely. Do you have any sort of parting thoughts or like anything else you want to cover today before we wrap up? Um, for anyone who might be considering applying this year or even next year, the one thing I'm going to say is it's never too early to start. And then the second thing I'm going to say, and hopefully that doesn't go against the grain of what you advise, is um, to say um, don't over-index or solely focus on the test. Hopefully mm-hmm. everything that we talked about today demonstrates that your entire application matters, so make sure that it's um, strong. And again, Remember um, the message that it's a collage, not a puzzle. So work with the pieces you have. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. This has been Jerry Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Petia Whitmore from My MBA Path. And Achievable has a great online GRE course that you can try for free at achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.